Last week we spoke about the idea of the fact that every single Yid has a Ava Mesoteras, a hidden love for Hashem. And this love for Hashem, especially by people who are, who are sinners, people who are not doing what they're supposed to be doing, so it's in Golos, meaning that um, although the entire Neshama receives its energy and its life from Chachma, but the energy and life that comes from Chachma is in Golos, is hijacked, and it's used for things that are opposite of what it's supposed to be. And moreover, the actual Chachma itself is asleep. And when does it come roaring awake? It comes roaring awake when it feels threatened. When the Chachma itself, when its very essence feels threatened, and it's challenged and with an Nesoyim, a test of Mesiris Nefesh al Hashem, that's when it comes roaring alive. So what we've established is that every single Yid, regardless of who he or she may be, has this hidden love for Hashem. Now, in the beginning of Perik Yudchas, the beginning of chapter 18, which was the last Perik, the Alter Rebbe says that we have to figure out how it's how it's very close to us to have love for Hashem and fear for Hashem. So we've figured out what this love is that we're referring to. Now, we have not yet figured out how to access this love. That's something which we will be talking about in the coming chapters. But we have figured out at the, very, at, at the very least, we figured out what this love that we're talking about is. We're talking about a natural love for Hashem, which is inherent and present within every, within every Yid. Where is the fear? Where is the fear for Hashem, the natural fear for Hashem? That's what we're going to learn right now. Again, first word on page 50. The light, the infinite light of Hashem. Which is within the chachma of the neshama of every yid, gadol va'atzum koyche kolkach. It is so powerful and it is so strong. Legarish v'litchais hasiter achra va'aklipais. That it has the power to expel and push away anything which is from the other side, from the klipa. Shelo yuchlu yigu afilu belavushav. That they shall not be able to touch even in the levushim of the neshama, the garments of the neshama. Thought, speech, and action when it comes to believing in the one Hashem. What does this mean? So we're talking here about when a person is forced, a person is uh, given an option to either um, bow down to an idol, or to give up his life. So as we know historically, Yidin over the centuries have given up their life. Given up their life for what? So as not to do an action or to say words. Because also that's something you know they'll never they'll never verbally reject Hashem or Chas V'Shalom except another religion. But that's kind of interesting because what does it matter what I say? What does it matter what I do? So I'll bow down. But if you, Hashem looks into my heart, He knows that inside me, I've not rejected Hashem. I've not turned my back on Hashem. I'm totally with Hashem. I just want to preserve my life. So therefore, maybe I can make a choice to say some words which I don't mean. Or to do an act that, I, that uh, it doesn't really reflect what's going on within me. So this is the amazing thing. We're saying that the chachma of a yid, the neshama, the love of a yid awakens. It's not only, it's not only petrified and terrified of the thought of actually rejecting Hashem, but even doing something external, such as saying some words or doing an action, which can be interpreted as going against Hashem. And as we know, as we've spoken in, in the earlier chapters of Tanya, that levushim garments, the reason why that thought, speech, and action are called garments, and we're going to focus today more on speech and action, is because they don't necessarily reflect who I am. I can say something and not mean it. I want to connect it to the political environment of the day. Politicians are experts at that. They say something, they don't mean it. Uh, to every constituency, they say to them what they want to hear. I can do something, and that act that I do doesn't necessarily reflect 
what's going on inside me in my thoughts and my thoughts and in my feelings. So why is it so important? My levushim, they don't, they're not, that's not me. But the, my love for Hashem is so powerful that I will refuse to do something which another person looks at it and it looks like I'm rejecting Hashem. I refuse to use my faculty of action. I refuse to use my power to speak, to say or do something against Hashem, even if it's not a reflection of my true beliefs. They have a sentence in Hebrew, Ehad Right? That's exactly what you're saying. That's correct. The Hainu, four lines from the top, this means, Lamid bin Nisoyin, that means that a Yid, has, a yid will, will uh, withstand the temptation, the test, Limser Nafsheh, and will give up his life, Afilush even not to do an action, Negadimunas Hashem, which goes against our belief in Hashem. Kegoin, for example, Yishtachwe Slavedazara, to bow down to Vedazara, even though he completely doesn't believe so in his heart. Hard to believe. But Hanukkah is on its way, once again. Actually, when it starts getting dark at around 5 o'clock, it gets easier to believe. <laughs> but one of the famous stories about Hanukkah is the story of Hanan and her seven sons. And her seventh son, so we all know the story, you heard it probably when we were four or five or six in, in, in school, the seventh son, the first six sons, they were brought in, and the king or the general, whoever it was, asked them to bow down to an idol, and they refused, and they were killed. And the seventh son was a little boy, and he was brought in, and um, the king said, here, I will throw down my ring on the floor, in front of the Avedazar, in front of this idol, and you'll, bow down, and you'll bend down to pick up the ring, and everyone around, will, will uh, it'll look like you're bowing down, but you're really not bowing down, so I'll say face, because it'll look like that I finally got someone to, uh, to bow down. I got a yid to bow down to, uh, to the idol. But you're just picking up the ring, and the, king, the kid refused, and the kid was killed. So this is like a, a prime example of a case of the kid would have been within his right to say, yeah, I'm picking up the ring, not doing anything. But even to do an act which can be interpreted as a zara, a yid will not do. Even though he doesn't believe in it at all in his heart. Similarly, not to speak against the unity of Hashem, even though that his heart and his mouth are not on the same page. Rather, his heart is complete with the belief in Hashem. This is the fear, which is included within the love. So we know there's this love, which we're talking about the last two prakim, the last two chapters. This natural love, which is within the neshama of every yid, which naturally yearns and desires to connect to its source, the infinite light of Hashem. Because of this love and this desire, it fears by its nature to touch even to touch the edge of anything which goes against the Amuna in the one Hashem. Even only with its external garments. Shehim dibur maisa, whether it's speaking or action, believe amuna, believe klal, without any amuna within the heart at all, in the heart, without any um, belief, real belief in the heart at all. So this is the fear, you know. The, um, <clears throat> so, for example, if a son love a child loves his father, and therefore is afraid to do anything. That will upset his father. So can we say the child fears the father? Not really. The child loves the father. The fear is a consequence of the love. So here too, the, the yira that we're talking about over here, the fear of Hashem is really 
a consequence of the love. Naturally, within the neshama of every single yid, there's this intense love for Hashem. That love leads to a fear, the fear of not being, of not doing anything, which can potentially distance it from Hashem, cut it off, cut, cut itself off from Hashem. So, therefore, every single yid, what we have over here is that every single yid, by his nature within, has both a love for Hashem and a fear for Hashem. The love being the primary. Um, emotion and the fear being its extension. Yes. If that's the, if that's yeah. the case, how come it's the tshu, there's two types of tshuva and you have to have a kavana to have tshuva out of ava? If, if, you order, if there's love, automatically kavana out of year is a kavana, is, is a tshuva out of ava? It's a great question. After class. Because it's a, an extended conversation. So there's, a, there's this chassid in Grand Heights. I may have mentioned him before. His name is um, Remendel Mirazov. He's 100 years old, and he was born in the city of Lubavitch. Related to a rabbi? His grandfather. His grandfather? His grandfather, yeah. And so he was born in 1916 in the city of Lubavitch. His father was the secretary of the fifth Lubavitcher rabbi. In other words, not the previous Rebbe, the previous Rebbe, in other words, the, the present Rebbe's father-in-law was the sixth Rebbe. His father, who passed away in 1920, was the fifth Lubavitch Rebbe, called the Rebbe Rashab, Rebbe Shalom Leibber. So this Chassid, who lives in Kran Heights today, and I've sat by him and listened to his Fabringas many times, so his father was a secretary by the Rebbe Rashab. Now, the Rebbe Rashab had to escape Lubavitch in 1916. This was during World War I, and for whatever reasons, for political reasons, and he, he was fearing that they would arrest him, for whatever reasons, he had to, he had to run away from Lubavitch. So he left in, in Cheshvan of 1916. Come to think of it. Oh, so that's uh, 100 years ago? No, 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 no. It was 1915. It was Tafresh Ayn Vav. Tafresh Ayn Vav. So it's 1915, I'm sorry. 1915. That's 101 years. 101 years ago. Right. Even better. Okay. So, shortly after, after, that's when everyone left Lubavitch. The yeshiva stayed in Lubavitch for another year or two, but that's when everything... Then then a year later, two years later, was the revolution, 1917, and everything started um, going crazy in Russia. So this, um, this chassid with his family... They also, they left Lubavitch. Actually, for a little a brief time, they ended up in the city of Dnieper Petrovsk, which is where the Rebbe's father was, um, was the rabbi over there. The Rebbe at that time was how old? So this is, Rebbe's around 13, 14 years old. And they actually stayed for a while in the, in the Rebbe's parents' house. But then they moved on. Now, this was a terrible time for Yidin, terrible time for Russia, but also a terrible time for Eden because this was during the, the, the after World War One ended, but that's when the Revolutionary War was going on full force. The revolution, the Bolshevik Revolution in Russia, and there were a million armies. There was the Red, and there was the White, and there was many other different uh, factions, and they were all battling for each other till finally, I guess, the the Reds won. And every single time that an army went into a city, so obviously one of the first ones to suffer were always the Eden, because all these armies were all anti-Semitic. So this uh, Remendel Merazov, he says a story of what happened when he was a little boy. So this probably, we're talking about the area of 1920, maybe 1919. He doesn't remember it because he was, um, he was a very young boy. He was, he was born in 1916. But this is uh, the story that's told in his family is that they were in a certain city, not in Lubavitch, just after they ran away from Lubavitch, and I don't remember the name of the city. But they were in a certain city, and they lived together with a bunch of other Yidin in an alleyway. In other words, there was an alleyway, and in the alleyway there was a bunch of, uh, there was a few apartment buildings um, that were there, and there were some from a Yidin that lived in that alleyway. Now, so let's say this is the alleyway, and the, here's the main street, so in, the, in a house which, which was right on the, main, on the main street, right on the corner of the alley in the main street, there lived two women. And they were um, Jewish women who had converted to Christianity. 
and they wore big crosses on their uh, on necklaces. And not only were they not only were they um, did they convert to Christianity, so they were for religious reasons, but they were. Uh, but also, they were they didn't dress sneas, and they were very promiscuous. There was always men coming in and out of their houses. And the Yidin who were in the alleyway were obviously completely uh, disgusted by these two women. And every time that they go by them, they would, they would give a spit or they would say something uh, derogatory to these women. Anyways, the day comes, and um, an anti-Semitic mob is running through the city, looking for Yidin to kill. And he says, the whole fa- all the families went into a basement. And they propped up against the door anything they can prop up. And, uh, but it wasn't, you know, not with too much hope. You know, you, when, you, when you're in that situation, so you do anything that you can, but uh, everyone is preparing for the end. In fact, he said that he had, his little brother was a baby at that time. His little brother who eventually ended up becoming one of the biggest mashpiyim in Kran Heights. His name was Shalom Razov, a brilliant uh, mind in both Chassidus and Kabbalah and also in, uh, in Gemara. He passed away a few years ago. So he was a little baby, and he was crying. And some of the other people over there in that basement were scared that the crying would uh, alert the people to come, and they wanted to kill him. Yidin. In other words, and according to Allah, it's not uh, it's a, it's a din of a raidif. Din of a raidif. So they wanted to strangle, but the mother absolutely wouldn't let, and whatever. So, Farah <laughs> Hashem, it didn't happen. Anyway, the moms didn't come. What happened? What happened was that the mobs came running, came down the street, and they were going to pour, uh, turn into the alleyway, and they see you sitting there by the corner are two girls, two nice Christian girls with uh, crosses hanging. So they turn to the girls and say, are there any Jews in this alleyway? They look at each other, they turn to them and say, nope, <laughs> there are no Jews here. So they moved on. You know, why shouldn't they believe these two, uh, these two girls sitting with crosses? They moved on. And all the Yidin in that alleyway were speared. And you realize that obviously by doing that they put their own lives at risk because if one of the goyim had decided and said we don't you know let's go check anyways and they would have found the they would have found the yidin then they also would have been killed just like uh, everyone else. And he says that uh, from that moment on the yidin and the ali had a little different respect for those uh, for the, for those women. It's, uh, Why couldn't you dress up as Christian girls themselves and pull that ruse off? Because you couldn't. You're not allowed to. You can't to save the kuwa that fish. No. What? The what? Morano's you're talking about? We're, we're going to get to that soon. By the way, interestingly, the Rebbe was in Paris when the Nazis invaded. Because Rebbe was learning them, was studying them in Paris. So when the Nazis invaded, I don't know, was it 1939 or 1940? I'm not, uh, I'm not uh, so clear on the history. Yeah, yeah. So he was in Paris together with his wife. And they came around from house to house, the, the Gestapo, the Nazis, Yamach Shemam, and they asked everyone what their religion is. So when they came to the, the house of the Rebbe, so the Rebbe wasn't home. Only the Rebbe was home. So they asked her what their religion is, so she answered religious. And for whatever reason, they took it. They took that, they took that answer. Now, religious can obviously have, is very ambiguous. So when the Rebbe came home, his wife told him, the Rebbetson told him about it. And the Rebbe says, really? The Rebbe went to the Gestapo office and says, I want to change, the, I want to change it. I'm Jewish. We're Jewish. And they knew, I mean, everyone knew then what already what the Nazis were. I mean, this was uh, in Europe, they've been going since 1933. I think actually just this week is the anniversary of Christ, 75th. Yeah, yeah. He went to the police station, to the Gestapo, and he changed the registration to say that he's Jewish. Yes. That's, that's, but that's ridiculous. That's, that's, that's suicide. It's, it's absolutely ridiculous. But the Messiris Nefesh is. Messiris Nefesh is ridiculous. The idea of that our connection to Hashem and our connection to Yiddishkeit is not something which makes sense. I think that we've established that it comes from the very point of the Neshama. But going back to the story that we mentioned earlier. About about these two, but these two women. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a fa- I mean, first of all, it really brings out this idea in Tanya that we're talking about 
Uh, that every single yid, as distant as they may go, there's the pintle and neshama, and when that when that pintle and neshama wakes up, then nothing is nothing is important. And uh, but it also kind of raises a question. What's the question that's raised? If this is all correct, then why is it that they uh, that they converted in the first place? What happened? Why did the pintle and neshama only wake up at a later date, and why didn't they wake up? Yeah. And this is a question which we really we've, uh, we punted on earlier on a few weeks ago when we were talking about it in Perikut Ches. And I want to come back to it a little now. The question, the Alter Rebbe says that every single Yid has a Neshama. And this Neshama, again, is by every single Yid, without exception. It's part of the DNA. It's not something which is, a, you know, an inclination or a Jewish trait, which maybe some people have a little more, maybe some people, you know, Jews, officially, we have big noses, okay? But some of us have bigger noses, some of us have smaller noses. It's not inherent to being a, to being a Jew. And so when we talk about Mr. Snafesh, it's not like a big nose. It's, a, it's something which is, exists within every Yid, and within every Yid equally, because it's an essential part of the Neshama. Just like there's no such thing as me, that I, I can say I'm more of a human being than you, or you, or anyone is more. It's all the same by everyone. We're all equally Jewish, and the fact that we're all equally Jewish means that we all have this love for Hashem in equal measure. And therefore, and therefore, because at our essence we all have our love for our love for Hashem in equal measure, so therefore all Yidin give up their lives like in this Hashem. Uh, the, uses, the, the words that Alter Rebbe uses actually is Al Harev for the most part, but that only raises the question: Why is it only Al Harev? Why is it only for the most part? We just finished in the last two chapters discussing this tremendous love for Hashem. Why are there exceptions to the rule? Why are there Yidin today who would abandon their Yiddishkeit and convert to other religions? Why were there many, many people in Spain who rather than, um, who rather than leave the country um, decided to convert to Christianity? And couples in the concentration camp. Well, here we're talking specifically about, um, about Avedazara. Yeah. Couples have to do anything. Well, they, they, they collaborated with the Nazis. So the story is like this. We all know that parents love their children. Imagine a imagine a mother who gives up her child for adoption. For whatever reason, she can't take care of the child. She gave, she gave up the kid at birth for adoption. But she's a mother still. She continues to love her child. Now imagine one day, she's walking down the street. And as it happens, walking on the other side of the street is her 30-year-old son. And they pass by each other. What's likely to happen as they pass by each other? They might pass up. Stop yeah. and hang up. Hang up. That's How what many years they didn't see each other? 30 years. Oh, he's 30, and the last time she saw him was when he was a day old. What's likely to happen? She won't recognize him. Nothing. They'll feel something. She's going to keep... I don't think so. She's going to keep on walking. He's going to keep on walking. And life is going to continue. Now, and it, although the strange thing is, she has been thinking about him every single day for the last 30 years. And it's full of love for him. It's very possible that he is aware that he's an adopted child and he's been looking for his mother for the past uh, for the past 20 years and would love to meet to, 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 to meet her and he has feelings for her also. But nothing. Why? The love exists, but there is a certain prerequisite, which is you have to have knowledge. You have to have awareness that this is my mother or this is my child. In a similar way, when we're talking about our love for Hashem, every single Yid, without exception, loves Hashem. However, one second, before the however, every single Yid loves Hashem, and the relationship, the Yid's relationship with Hashem, is so important to him or her that he or she would be willing to give up their life so as not to be disconnected from Hashem. But what constitutes the relationship? 
What is this relationship? And how does it get cut? And how does it get severed? Historically speaking, for the average Yid, what was the red line? What was the red line which was crossed, which a person would say, if I cross this line, then I've severed my relationship with Hashem. So historically, that line was of a desire or converting to another religion. That is the knowledge they had. I want a relationship with Hashem, and my brain tells me that if I were to leave Yiddishkeit or bow down to Avedazara, then I forfeited that relationship with Hashem. It no longer exists. But this is something which is somewhat subjective. So you had many, for example, in Spain, who said to themselves, I can go through the external motions of bowing down to a cross, but I'm still connected to Hashem. That was their cheshben. That was, and that's why they, they weren't rejecting Hashem. And in their opinion, they were still connected to Hashem. And that's why they were still lighting the Shabbos candles and having the Pesach say they're in the cellar. If they felt that they had severed themselves from Hashem and that they weren't eaten anymore, why were they keeping the mitzvahs though? Because in their estimation, I'm sure they realized it was wrong. It's not an issue whether it was right or wrong. But just like we do things that are wrong, all of us over here, and we still believe that we're connected to Hashem. So they were they felt that they could still remain connected to Hashem despite the fact that they bowed down to the cross. And also interestingly, that many of these many of these Muranos, when they were caught, and um, they were given the option that if they would re-embrace Christianity, then they would be kind to them and they would kill them before, and then just burn the bodies in the, in the Auto Dafe. But if they refused to do that, then they would be burned alive. And historically, many, if not most of the Yidin chose to be burned alive, which is interesting. These were Yidin who already converted to Christianity once. But it didn't, they, in their minds, they were still Yidin, in their minds, they were still connected. So everyone has their red line. Meaning, a Yid wants to be connected to Hashem. However, what is what will make me disconnected from Hashem? What is my red line that I absolutely, Bishum Oifen, can never cross? For most Yidin, Al Haroiv, as Dr. Rebbe says, for most Yidin, that red line was, was converting, as they say in Yiddish, to become a Mashumid. Some people, their red line was different. And we see that today also. You know, that's the interesting thing about that, you know, the story which we mentioned, which was mentioned a few times about the Kapo who didn't want to eat, who was willing to give up his life not to eat on Yom Kippur. Which, by the way, halachically speaking, he didn't even have to give up his life for that. But to him, what was his Yiddishkeit and what was his connection to Hashem was fasting on Yom Kippur. And you have that today. Every single year, even the Yidin are far away from Yiddishkeit. You ask them, what is your red line? You want to be connected to Hashem. What is your red line? But the problem is that red line depends a lot, of the, a lot on, their, on, their, on, on their knowledge, as we mentioned before about the mother and the son. Some people have no idea, Bechal, that to be connected to Hashem means to do Torah mitzvahs. Some people have no idea that to be connected to Hashem means to be a Yid. So that's why you can have today a Yid, Rahman Wuslan, an uneducated Yid who doesn't know anything about Torah mitzvahs, who will convert to another religion. And that's not because he doesn't have an neshama. To the contrary, it's because he does have an neshama. It's because he wants to connect Hashem and he has no idea how to. And to him, he found someone, spoke to him and gave him a way to connect Hashem. And he doesn't realize this is the wrong way. So the rule that we're saying over here is, the rule that al is giving us, is that every the neshama of a yid wants to be connected to Hashem. And, to, and a Yid would rather die than forfeit or reject or repudiate that relationship with Hashem. But that plays out in different ways by different people. So again, historically, for thousands of years, when almost all Yidin were from, by the way, so at that time, the average Yid understood that my connection with Hashem, where does it end? Is by, is by, is by converting. So that's what people gave up their lives for in mass. But there were certain people who took it further and says, no, I can be connected to Hashem even without that. And even today, you go to Yid 
What are you saying? He's, he's, he's reformed. He's on, I fast on Yom Kippur. My kids get a bris. In other words, there are those things which to them, that is their relationship to Hashem, and that's something which nothing in the world can take it away from them. What's interesting is that we're in, the late, in the upcoming Prakim we're going to learn that um, the truth is that every time that a Yid does an Avera, he's disconnected from Hashem. The Pasuk says, that your, your Avedas cause you to be separated from Hashem. So in truth, really, we should give up our lives for every single Avera. If we're petrified of being severed from Hashem, of having our relationship severed with that from Hashem, then for every Avera, you should give up his life. Okay, the halacha, we're not, we're not discussing the halachic element of that. That we'll discuss that later on in Mirza Shem in chapter 23. But in theory, why doesn't that happen? Because we do an Avera, and we still convince ourselves that we're still connected to Hashem. That's, in other words, if, I did a, if, when, I, if when a person does an Avera, they, ate, they were actually totally and fully aware and conscious. Not only conscious and aware in the mind, but in the heart. They felt that this is something which is ripping them away from Hashem. No yid would ever do an Avera. Because every single yid has this avim soteris and wants to only be connected to Hashem. The problem is that what? We don't feel it. Some people don't feel it even when they bow down to a cross. They don't feel that they're disconnected. But the, every single yid does have that red line that they won't cross. And the fact is that for every single yid, their relationship with Hashem is the most important thing in their life and in who they are. So we've established over here that... Every single Yid has an Ava for Hashem, a hidden love for Hashem, and a Yira for Hashem, a hidden, a hidden fear. And therefore, Yidin give up their lives, Al-Kiddush Hashem. That's nice. But we all want to live. We don't want to die. So how do we capitalize upon this love? How do we leverage this love in our everyday Avedas Hashem? It's very nice and fascinating in a theoretical way, especially in Baruch Hashem, when, we're, when we live in a country where, for the most part, 99.9% of the time, we don't have to worry about Enesoyin al Kiddush Hashem. So how does this help us practically? And that's what the upcoming program are going to be talking about. We're going to say, now that we've figured out what this Avam Soteris is, what what it is and how it normally functions, now we have to figure out how to take it and apply that in our daily life and to use it to be able to be to use it in a way that we all can um, <clears throat> that we all can do all mitzvahs in the machshava and in the deeper and maisa with a fear, feeling of love for Hashem and fear for Hashem and that's what we're going to be talking about in the, in the, in the coming program. Before we continue, however, so I wanted to give over a word in the parsha, and then either we'll move on or we won't move on, depending on the time, which is uh, somewhat related to this idea of the Pintle Yid, which is within every single Yid, which we've been talking about in the last two program. In this week's parsha, so we have the story of the battle of Avram Avinu against the, the mighty and powerful four kings. And after the battle, so the Pasuk says that after these things, so Hashem, Hashem revealed himself in a vision to Avram. And Hashem tells Avram, Do not fear. I am your shield. We say in davening every day, Magin Avram, Anechi Magin Lacha, Scharcha Harbem Mioid, you have a lot of reward awaiting you. Why is Hashem reassuring Avram Avinu that he has a lot of rewards? So Rashi says that because of all the miracles that he experienced in the course of the war, the battle against the four kings, so he's worried that he had depleted his, uh, his reserve. He had taken, he had already uh, taken, he was compensated for his service of Hashem, and he's worried that he maybe didn't have reward left over. 
So therefore, Hashem had to reassure him and tell him, Altito, do not fear. You still have a lot of reward waiting for you in the bank. Seems straightforward, right? The problem is that if we open up a Rambam to Hilchis Tshuva, so the Rambam says, and this is something really, which is earlier on in Pirkei Yavis, but well, the reason why we're quoting this from the Rambam, we get to in a moment, we know it says in Pirkei Yavis, Al tiyu kavodim hameshamshin do not serve the Eibishter for reward. And the Ramam talks about it and says that we have to serve the Eibishter because it's Emes, not because we're going to get any reward whatsoever that's irrelevant to us. In the words of the, the, words of the Rambam, you do what you have to do, and the reward's going to come at the end, but that's not the point. A Yid serves the Eibishter because we have to serve the Eibishter because we're servants. And then the Ramam continues and says, who is the prime example of someone who served Hashem for no benefit and no reason whatsoever is Avram Avinu. It's the Ramam says. As the Pasuk says about Avram, the Pasuk, the Pasuk refers to him as Avram Ayavi, the Avram who loved Hashem. He loved Hashem. He did mitzvahs because he loved Hashem. So here's this Avram Avinu who had no desire for reward. He only wanted to serve Hashem. And Hashem is coming and saying, don't worry, because uh, you're worried that you're not going to have reward. You'll have plenty of reward. That's what's bothering Avram Avinu. That's what's bothering Avram Avinu, that he didn't have reward. Never thought of reward in the first place. It's a Pashta Shailam, the Pasuk. You're learning it. Hashem has to come and reassure him, because it says that he was worried. In fact, in the first Mimer that the Rebbe said when he became Rebbe, he quoted from the previous rabbi, the, what was the interesting rabbi, the Avram and Rabbi Kiva. The Rabbi Kiva's entire life, you know, that what was he looking for his entire life? He wanted to give up his life for Hashem to the point that when he was being murdered and brutally tortured, he was, he was being flayed, his skin was being uh, torn off and being combed off him, he was smiling and his students asked him, really? And he says, my entire life I'm waiting for this moment, I shouldn't be happy, I shouldn't smile, I was waiting for the moment when I can give up my life, Al-Kiddush Hashem. That seems to be the ultimate madrega. So the the previous rabbi says, no. Avram Avinu was the ultimate madrega. Avram Avinu wasn't looking to, to die al-Kiddush Hashem. He was looking to serve Hashem. And if that means that he'll, that he'll live, that means he'll live. That means he'll die. That's a, he doesn't mind that either. In other words, it's not... He, he, he has his job, and his job is to spread the, to spread the word of Hashem throughout the world. Of Vayikra Hashem B'Shem Hashem Kelelem, of letting the world know that there's one Eibishter. And whatever is necessary to do that goal, Rebbe Kiva, to a certain extent, was looking for his personal shleimus. He was looking for his completion. He wanted to reach the, achieve the highest level of serving Hashem. And Avraham Avinu had no such ambitions. His ambitions was only to do what he, was, what he had to do. So here you have Avraham Avinu, and Hashem has to come and reassure him and tell him, don't worry, you still have a lot of reward. It, it's, there's something which is incongruous over here. There's something missing here. So the Rebbe speaks about this, and the Rebbe says something interesting. He says like this, first of all, we know the famous Maimar Chazal, La'olam yasek adam b'teiro mitzvah shalei l'shma, shemetoich shalei l'shma balashma. That a person should always do teira mitzvahs, even if it's with improper intentions, because eventually you'll start doing it with the, in the, with the proper intentions. Now it's interesting that the Gemara in Mesech Tzbrachas and Daf Yitzayin, so the Gemara says, that haloimid teira shleilashma, that someone learns shleilashma, is neach lei shalei nivra, it's better that he wouldn't have been created. So Teisus asks, it's a contradiction. In one place we say that Taka should learn shleilashma, and here we're saying that it's better that he wouldn't have been created. So Teisus says there's a difference. There are two types of shleilashma. If a person is learning shleilashma, but what is shleilashma? He wants that people should give him honor. He wants to come out from Chachim, so he should be a respected individual. So then we say, keep on learning. Even though it's Shleil Lashma, Bamatech Shleil Lashma, Balashma. But then there's a Shleil Lashma, another type of Shleil Lashma, which is Halaymid al Manas Lakanter. Halaymid al Manas Lakanter. You're learning Torah so that you should be able to um, show someone else that you're superior to them. You're learning in order to be able to use your wisdom to be able to shtech someone. And that, it's better that you wouldn't have been created if you studied Torah in that way. Maybe. 
But the question, why? If it's, if, in other words, if learning Torah is fine, Shalilishma, because even though that currently you're not doing it the right way, eventually you'll come to do it the right way, then would, should, shouldn't that logic apply even if Halimid al contact? Why, why the difference that this Shalilishma is fine and this Shalilishma? Isn't fine. So there's a simple. That's just so the simple answer. The as a means to do something bad. Okay, that's just that. That's, that's, that's no, no. That's what you're saying is on a very pushed level. That's correct. That when you're learning Amanasla Kanter, so you t- you, it's, not, it's not just neutral, but you're taking the Torah and you're using it in a way which is Yisrael, which is against the entire Torah, as opposed to if you're doing it to get COVID or whatever, or to gain wealth or whatever reason. So it's that's not a good reason, but it's also you're not hurting anyone. That's a balabatisha answer, as they would say. But there's also a deeper dynamic at play. But I guarantee it's going to come <laughs> Sorry? Are they guaranteeing? That, that it's going to become Lashma. If, if you do it enough, it'll become Lashma. Because I know people that dive in their whole life, they dealt with Kavana, and they, and they never change. That's so what's with that? It's a good question. It's a good question. But the Gemara is, is correct anyways. So we have to, the, the question's on the person, on the people, not on the Gemara. Oh. <laughs> So in Chassidus, it's explained in different in different Sifri Chassidus that when we say the simple meaning is you should learn because eventually you'll come to the Lishma. But there's a deeper meaning. The deeper meaning is that the toich of the Shalilishma, the toich means the inside of the say the, the pnimius. At the core, at the inside, there is lishma, meaning to say, you're learning Torah, and it seems that you're doing it because you want money or because you want fame, or because you want honor, whatever it may be. That's true, but on the real inside, your neshama, what's really motivating you is your neshama wants to connect to Hashem. So therefore, learn Torah even it's, even though it's shalei lishma, because then the the deepest part of you is doing it for the right reason. We're multi-dimensional people. And this is something which is also, we know in halacha this way. This idea that there are different, uh, different layers to who we are. The very famous Rambam and Hilchus Gerishin, Perik Beis, where it says that if, there, if the din is, if Bazdan Paskins, that a man has to give his wife a get. So the problem is that you can't coerce a person to give a get. Because according to halacha, it has to be according to... It has to be it has to the husband has to want to give the get. So you, you can't no, you can't force him to give a get. You're not allowed, you can't. It has to be Lurtsoina. He has to want to do it. Oh, so, so you can't force him to give a give a get. You can't hit him until he gives a get. What you do is so Bezdin, it says that Bezdin in all times and all places, Makim what you say? That they give him they they, they, they give him clap, they give him you give him they hit him. Until he says, I want. So you don't force him to give a get. You force him to say, I want. And then, oh, look, he wants. So you can write a get. You're making with your face because it's a joke, right? It seems to be a big joke. If you want to say that you're forcing the person to give the get, I get it. Sorry for the pun. (laughs) But you're telling me, no, we're not forcing the person to give the get. No, 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 no. We're getting him to want to. That's all we're doing. We're gonna get him. We're gonna we're gonna give him a little um, encouragement, incentive. an incentive to want to give the get. A little mafia will come after him. But it, it seems to make no sense. So who are, who define, are we? Who, how do you define fear? Who are we? Who, 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 for in other words, yeah. Who are we fooling? We all know the person doesn't want to give the get, and we all know the reason why the person says I want. Because because of pain. Is because of the pain exactly. So how can this be construed as being Lutsoina, as being something that the person truly wants? There are other ways to explain that, but I don't criticize the way that Rambam is Okay, but I think we're all fine though with the Rambam, right? The Rambam's opinion is definitely a valid opinion. I personally have problems with it. 
the fact that you have problems with it, and we all have different, but doesn't make it incorrect. This is the Rambam we're talking about. So the Rambam was the Rambam God, and it's not. a different conversation. It's a different conversation. So the Rambam says that the Rambam says that the MS is that every single yid, every single yid, wants to do everything that it says in the Torah. And Rachel lost his kolam mitzvahs and wants to do every single mitzvah with shrachach and averus and doesn't want to do any averus. So deep inside this person, he wants to give the get. Why? Because best in Paskin, then he has to give the get. So he wants to give it. The problem is that Yitzray Husha Ansai, the Yitzhahara, has hijacked him, has farhapped him. And the Yitzhahara is causing him to say, I don't want. So we compel him to say, I want. And then what do we have? His, with his mouth, he's saying, I want. And we all know that. And the inside, really, he wants. No. There's three layers here. There's the inside that wants. The deepest part of him wants. Then there's this layer on the outside that doesn't want. And then there's his speech. All we need to get is that the speech should be consistent with his realist self, his inside. And that's fine. Because it's not only the speech. The speech, Taka, is a reflection of what he really wants. We're fine. We're good. So what, what, so how, <clears throat> what constitutes a get a get mu'usa is if Bezden, if Bezden didn't paskin. If Bezden didn't paskin that he has to give a get and he's forced to give a get, then that's nothing because that person really doesn't want to give the get. And the fact that he says, I want to, doesn't help you because we know he really doesn't want to. And, and, the, and, and on the inside also he doesn't want to because the Bezden didn't say so. This is only if the Bezden paskins that way and the Bezden retains people to do to, 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 to force him, then, then it's a kosher get. We're not going to get into the politics of it and obviously it's uh, today. Okay. So we have the same idea over here. That when a person is learning Torah. So even though that it seems that the reason why he's doing it is for ulterior motives, but we should know that the toich, at the very inside, at the very core of the person, what he really wants is to do the mitzvah. That's the standard explanation Chassidus brought down in many Sfarim Chassidus as to... Um, what does it mean? The chsidisha taich, the chsidisha, the chsidic interpretation of metech shalelashma balashma. So the Rebbe says, but there's another way of understanding this. Because the way we're interpreting it right now until now is that what? That the mitzvah the person is doing is shalelashma. But the yid, and the very and the inside, the very inside of the yid, there is the lashma. There is a deeper way of looking at it is like this. The balashma means that the inside of the leilashma is lashma. Not only the real reason why I'm doing, why I'm learning Torah is because Hashem wants me to, but if I'm to dig into the shalelashma itself, I'll figure out that the reason why I want the honor or the reason why I want the money is also part of my service of Hashem. So when a person learns Torah, and the reason why, and ostensibly, it's because he wants to be honored, or he wants to get reward in this world, he wants to be wealthy, or any other rewards that come from learning Torah, or doing mitzvahs. So, what is the real reason why he wants the reward? Is because he wants that people should see that when someone learns Torah, they're rewarded with wealth and they're rewarded with honor, and this way other people also will want to come and start learning Torah and mitzvahs. Yes, start learning Torah and doing mitzvahs. And this is a phenomenal thought. In other words, not only that we're saying you're doing the actual lishma, but really it's lishma. The shalay lishma, the depth of the shalay lishma itself is also lishma. The fact that you're doing a shalay lishma, that also you peel the onion, you'll find underneath there also at the core of it. It's deep. Yeah, but he doesn't have. He, but he's, he doesn't have that intent. He doesn't have. No, no. So th- th- this is really an expression of what we're talking about, the pintaliyid, which works on a on a subconscious level, and motivates our behavior in a subconscious way. That even those things that we think we might be doing it for one reason, but really we're unaware that there are other motivations going on inside of us. And here's the crazy thing: even when we're doing something for a selfish reason. But at the core of that selfishness is selflessness. At the core of the selfishness is our desire to serve Hashem also. 
because he's a very low person, he's a small person. So that's the limit, that's his maximum capacity. That's how he expresses his lishma through low lishma. And by the way, that answers the question you asked before, Rosa. Now, and now we understand what happened. Avram lost the wars, and now he's worried that he doesn't have any more reward. Why is he worried that he doesn't have more reward? Not because he wants reward. But here we have Avram Avinu. Avram Ha'ivri, he's on one side and the, everyone else is on the other side, the whole world. And he's, his job is to spread Torah and Yiddishkeit. And imagine now, if now he becomes a pauper, and he has no money, and he has no fame, and he has no honor, how is that going to impact his ability to influence continue. other people? To continue with Hashem and to influence other people. And that's what was bothering Avram Avinu. Not that he needed schar, but to him, his wealth... For example, the fact that he had money to go on to be able to, uh, to build and host his Eishel and have guests and teach them about Hashem was, was an integral part of his Avedah Sashem. Sashem tells him, Altira Avram, don't worry, you still have plenty, you have plenty, of, you have plenty of reward, and Avram sighed, a sigh of relief, ah, Baruch Hashem. So people will continue and be able to look at me and say, take a look at it, it's worth to serve Hashem, because someone who serves Hashem is rewarded with wealth and with money and with honor and with everything else that a person needs. So this is, I mean, it's a, it's a beautiful idea on the Parsha, and the idea how to... Even our desire for for Nyanam Gashmi, even our desire for to have a good life is also something which is part of our Vedas Hashem. After all, let, let, let a person look at a Yid and as a Frum Yid and Tayyid Yid and says that Baruch Hashem, he's not deprived and it's good for him. Begashmi is a Baruchni, he's a happy person, he has what he needs. So our desire to live a comfortable life, a comfortable life is really essentially is part of our Avedas Hashem. And this also brings out this idea which we're talking about in Tanya in the last two uh, prakim about the Pintlayid and just how, how impactful it is, even though that again is called Misuteris and it's called hidden. And maybe a person walking through his everyday life, you don't notice the Pintlayid, but we have to realize that it works in subconscious and mysterious ways and influences us and impacts us. And even sometimes we're doing something, we think it's for one purpose, but really, it's our pintle that's influencing us, and the point is to be able to further our Avedas Hashem. With that, we finish Perik um, Yutas. And Amir Hashem, next week we start a completely new Perik, but it's also a new Sugya, which is, uh, it's going to be all about Achtos Hashem, but the point is, where we're going to go with this is we're going to figure out how we can leverage, as we mentioned, the Avam Suteras to impact not only in a subconscious way, but in a conscious way, our lives and every part of our lives and all the decisions that we make in our lives on a daily basis. Shabbos, everyone.